welcome to another episode of Redefining Rural, sponsored by CSU Global. Today we have our regular hosts, Michelle Murphy and Danielle LaPlatte, with their guests here to talk about how schools are funded. Thanks, Alex. We're really excited to be here today. We have two experts in what at least Danielle and I consider to be a phenomenally interesting topic, um, school finance and more specifically school finance formulas, their impact on rural schools around the state, comparisons to other states. Um, and before we dig in, I just wanted to warn the listeners, it's incredibly complicated. So we're gonna do our best to keep it at a level that we can all understand. Um, so before we dig in, let's, let's have our guests introduce themselves. First, Glenn, can you uh, introduce yourself to our audience? Sure, I'm uh, Glenn McLean. I'm superintendent of the Platte Valley School District in Kersey, Colorado, which is just east of Greeley in Weld County. Um, uh, our district is about 1,200 students, and we cover about 288 square miles on the eastern edge of Weld County. Um, I've been with uh, the district for 29 years now, um, the first eight of which I was the business official, um, and that's how I got involved in, in school finance. Um, I was working at that time uh, with the Financial Policies and Procedures Committee with the Colorado Department of Education and involved with the 94 School Finance Act when it changed uh, from the previous Finance Act. Um, that was a little bit different structure. Uh, and then I became superintendent and have been continuing to be involved in school finance uh, throughout my career. Um, the Platte Valley School District, uh, with our 1,200 kids, we have a very supportive community. We've been fortunate enough um, in the past 15 years to pass uh, three mill levy overrides and three bond issues um, every five years, and we are now working on our fourth iteration of that in this current election season. Um, and uh, another thing that I'm involved with, there's a current uh, effort on mill levy equalization, and I'm working with the Colorado School Finance Project on that. Wow, he's about to take us down a whole <laughs> nother road. Before you do that, and I think that might be an entirely different show, um, I think before we turn to Lisa, can you talk to us a little bit, because you've already alluded to it, how does our current school finance formula, which as Glenn stated, was written in 1994, so we're still operating under a very old uh, formula. Talk a little bit about how that works, Glenn. Where does school district's revenue come from? So the Public School Finance Act of 94, um, it's what's called an equalization program. And we'll get into that in just a moment. But um, we, we start with determining uh, total program. And total program is another way of just saying your total funding. Um, and we start with counting students, and we, we call the October pupil count, which is just coming up next week for school districts all across the state. And there's lots of rules about that, but basically you, you count students and come up with what's called an FTE. So there's certain rules of why certain kids don't count for a full FTE, but um, you follow those rules and you come up with a number. And then um, you, you take that funded, and then you multiply that times a per pupil funding. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more of what that is, but you have a base funding, which is the base funding for everybody. So all districts then, in the state get the same base funding, right? They start with that base funding, and then 
they have factors that adjust that base funding. So there's a cost of living factor. So the cost of living, one of the classic examples of that, the cost of living for Boulder is different than the cost of living for Lyman or Burlington. Um, the cost of living in um, Grand Junction is different than the cost of living in Lamar. And so there's a cost of living factor that's adjusted. There's a personnel cost factor, um, which is almost directly tied to that cost of living factor, but the personnel. And then there's a size factor, which is, which is the big one. Um, so we have school districts of very few kids in almost the single digits on a couple Eastern Plain uh, districts up to um, almost 100,000 when you get into Denver Public Schools and, and Jefferson Public Schools. Um, and so that, that size factor, um, uh, dramatically, it's, it's up to a factor of two. Um, so if that base funding and adjust, and I think the average um, right now is in the high 7,000s. Um, so there are districts that are very small, that that size factor takes it up to almost $16,000 per student. Um, but uh, like a very large district, um, that is gets virtually no size factor. And um, so then they're much more around that average uh, average per student amount. So then you multiply those those two, the, the per student times the base that has been adjusted by those factors, and you get what's called the total program. Um, then what happens is on a local level, um, and this is what we call the equalization part, local property taxes, so whatever the local mill levy is times the assessed value raises some local money. So we're just going to use some round numbers here. Let's just say it's $8,000 a student, and you have 10,000 students, so that's $80 million. Let's say the local property tax of that uh, raises $60 million. And there's a smaller amount in there, which is specific ownership tax, which is a vehicle use tax. But the property tax and that other SOT, let's say it raises $60 million. Then the state funding comes in, and that's at $20 million. Now, if that local funding only raised $30 million of the $80 million, then the state part would be $50 million. That's how you get that equalization part. Then starting in um, 2009, after the Great Recession, the legislature determined that they couldn't afford the entire Finance Act. And so then there's a reduction. It was called the negative factor, and it's now called the budget stabilization factor. And right now, that's between, um, it's around 8%. And so then everybody's uh, overall funding is reduced by 8%. You had a question in there, Michelle? Nope. I was going to stop you and thank you for that and take turn it over to Lisa Weil from Great Education Colorado 
one of my favorite people in the world, I would say, <laughs> Back and at a you. mentor. Um, go ahead and tell us about yourself, your organization, and then we'll dig into how well you think the formula is providing for our kids around the state. Sure. Uh, well, Lisa Weil with Great Education Colorado, a proud graduate of Greeley Public Schools. Glenn, a uh, little bit to the uh, west of you. Uh, Great Education Colorado is a uh, statewide organization that has a vision of Colorado where every student, no matter where they live, no matter how they learn, no matter what the zip code, that every student graduates ready to lead their best life. Um, and the way that we work toward that is um, that we build a grassroots network and, uh, and coalitions that work for adequate, equitable, sustainable funding of our schools. Uh, we started in a living room of a, uh, of, a, uh, of a one of our founders, um, uh, boy, 16 years ago, hmm. uh, as just uh, some pre-K moms who recognized that our state wasn't funding our schools either adequately enough to really meet the needs of all school of all kids, or equitably. Uh, to make sure that every district had what they need and every student within those districts had what they need. And we realized that in Colorado, um, where actually our, our voters are the tax policy makers, that we needed to create uh, an organization that would help inform and empower individuals and bring organizations together to raise this issue and say, uh, is, this is how we're doing in Colorado. Uh, this is, Im we, we know that public education is fundamentally important to the state, to the economy, uh, and to individuals. So I think everybody recognizes it, but somehow Colorado wasn't doing uh, a good enough job um, at making sure that every student has, as I said, that vision, it, that what they need to graduate ready um, to really thrive. Um, and so what, what Glenn has just been talking about is uh, a school finance formula that needs to be updated because a lot has changed since 1994. But the, the part that he mentioned there as a result of the Great Recession is, uh, the, uh, is the, the budget stabilization factor. We like to call it the BS factor. I was looking to Michelle to see if it was okay to say that on a right. podcast. <laughs> I draw the line on what's okay or not. I love it. Uh, so the BS factor that happened in 2009, um, the, the, the School Finance Act was uh, functioning, and it was doing some, as, as uh, Glenn talked about, those factors. We call them the fairness factors, the things that make sure that, that a rural district that has just uh, you know no access to economies of scale gets increased funding to recognize what's necessary to give those rural students the, the opportunities they need. Um, in 2009, that formula that was functioning and probably could have used some updating to make it really responsive to, to Colorado uh, and the, the our, sort of our new demographics and realities, um, just lopped off 10% then became 12% at one point, 16% of what was determined to be necessary. And even then, mm -hmm. we had already decided that the school funding wasn't enough when we when we got together in that living room. Now, below that, it was it was cutting uh, at one point as much as $1.1 billion out of our school funding formula. Uh, at, as of now, it's been eight billion dollar that's that's been cut out of our school funding program. that's 1.1 billion annually that was 1.1 billion height, right? and now after years of recovery colorado having one of the hottest economies in the country we have reduced that bs factor to 572 million dollars a year that comes to about six seven hundred dollars a kid 
And so, you know, as you think mm. about your schools, multiply the number of kids in that school times that. And by the way, much more because of the way the, the, the school finance formula works, it cut more in rural schools than it did in, in schools that are closer to the base. So now what we're talking about is, is falling that far behind, just keeping up with inflation from a decade ago. Um, that's why we have statistics like uh, Colorado is $2,700 behind the national average. You know, think about that school you just calculated, how much it would be. Uh, multiply the number of kids times $2,700, and that's how much that student would be getting or, or their school would be getting if Colorado were getting a C. Um, this is how we've got come to, to have huge uh, um, teacher shortage issues, especially in rural Colorado. Uh, and as a matter of fact, Colorado has the distinction of being the absolute last, the, the state with the biggest gap between what teachers make and what they could make in other uh, uh, professions for which they're qualified for. So we have literally the least competitive wages for our teachers in the nation and so it's not a uh, not a surprise that we're having a hard time finding teachers to come to stay and and glenn can speak i'm sure to uh that challenge in rural schools and some of the other uh the other consequences of just lopping off that kind of fundamental funding for every district so before we get into what great ed is doing to try and combat the problem Glenn, can you talk a little bit about the realities in your district and maybe talk to you about how your district, because of the oil and gas revenues, are is sort of situated differently than others with the state and local revenue? Right. So um, in my example, I talked about you start with the that local funding. Well, um, there's been uh, – we're in Weld County, which uh, is one of the – uh, major concentrations of oil and gas activity in the state of Colorado, or really in the nation, and um, oil and gas is, is taxed, and it adds to our assessed value. Um, and so our assessed value has grown dramatically over the years um, to the point where when you take that um, uh, per-pupil amount um, times the number of pupils, we are raising all that locally. It's 100% local funding. We're getting zero from the state. Um, there's a, another little section of funding that's called categoricals, which is career and technical ed and gifted and talented and some money for English language learners um, and special education. We're even raising that locally and having to pay our um, categorical funding, that's what that's called, back to the to the state um, so we're not getting any of that now one of the upsides so um, while we have one of the lowest mill rates in the state which raises to our local funding against that assessed value um, we uh, um, we then don't get the BS factor because uh, the BS factor is taken out of the state equalization. Well, if you don't get it, there's nothing to subtract it from. Um, the One of the other uh, effects of oil and gas is it can be volatile. So I was in uh, this situation, this funding situation, which is called categorical buyout, um, back in 1516, 2015, 2016. And uh, then a year later, 
Um, our assessed value, because of uh, a drop, we dropped 40% um, hmm. in that. So we went back into getting state funding, which means we got the budget stabilization factor back in one year. And then now two years later, we're back into categorical buyout. Now, we're, we're grateful for what we have and, and our supportive community, which, you know, the, the assessed value and the low mill rates what's allowed us to be able to do the mill levy overrides and bonds. Um, but the volatility does make it difficult to plan. Can you talk a little bit, too, about the impact of the cuts from the BS factor on your rural school district and rural school districts around you? And I guess your cuts, as you said, um, you, the BS factor doesn't impact you as much. But talk about the kinds of things that our rural districts have been forced to cut because of the BS factor. Right. So, um, you know, it gets some to what Lisa was talking about. Um, a lot of the districts are just not able to keep up with um, uh, compensation, whether you're talking about wages or benefits. Um, so then it's hard to, to hire teachers. And so then you have districts who are going without, so to speak, or they're combining things. Um, some of the smaller districts to my north, you know, they've combined grade levels. You know, it used to be fairly common for those districts, you know, to combine two grade levels, like a K-1 or uh, grades three and four. Now they're starting to combine three grade levels, so K-1-2, three, four, five, being with one teacher. Um, uh, it's very difficult. Uh, it, it's getting to where it's very difficult to hire teachers at all. We used to say they were um, hard to find or hard to fill, um, and those were very often like special education, uh, the sciences and math in, um, in high school or in the secondary schools, uh, which is true. And some school districts, there's stories from around the state where uh, districts have gone without a licensed high school math teacher for several years or a licensed high school science teacher for several years, um, which is why we have other programs to try to fill those. Uh, but when you're behind, the compensation isn't there. Uh, it is harder to, to, to find those folks. Is that Yeah, thank you. Help? Danielle, what are you seeing around the state as you travel around to districts in terms of other impacts and other sort of equity issues for our rural kids? I think, you know, along the same lines of what Glenn is talking about, um, to begin with, there's been a shallow pool of applicants in many of our rural districts, and I wouldn't even say it's a pool anymore. It's more of a, a, a drop, <laughs> you know. So, I mean, the pool is pretty, pretty shallow. It's drying up. And so I think that's definitely a concern. I think districts are becoming more creative with staffing patterns, looking at succession planning and thinking about in future how they're going to um, – reorganize based on the qualifications of their staff. A, a lot of what I see is that a lot of our rural districts become almost person dependent and they rely so much on the skills of the the um, people in their district that they, they really do adapt. Um, and so I see a lot of that. But as Glenn's talking about combining classrooms and having multi-age, multi-grade classrooms, I think that's becoming something that is more common than it was in the past. And I, I just think, you know, 
based upon their needs um, locally. They're just having to adapt more and more. And also I think they're um, maybe one of the opportunities or more positive things that has come out of it is more partnerships with the community, relying on um, people in the community with special skills to come in and help and to um, think about ways that they can offer more in their schools um, with less, essentially. So that's a lot of what I see out in the field. And we've talked a bit in other uh, shows about the over-reliance on grant funding and private and state grant funds in order to meet certain needs around uh, whether it's technology or course opportunities or um, mental health supports. I think we're seeing yeah, a lot Yeah, and I think that. Glenn can probably speak to this too, but there's definitely a capacity issue. And so while having opportunities for grants are um, – you know, they're positive, but they're also challenging at the same time because our small districts just don't have the capacity to write those grants, to keep up with the requirements, to um, really have the manpower that it takes to provide some of those programs. So um, again, thinking about creative ways that they can address some of these challenges. And so frequently those, those grants are great if you have the opportunity to get them and then they're gone. Then it's over. And then yeah, what? sustainability, that's another thing. You know, that's something else I think that comes up quite a bit is how do we continue this once our funding runs out? Um, and then that creates an additional layer of challenge. So lots of challenges. And I here. would add there's, you know, it, again, it used to be that maybe there was a common, but I, I really think rural districts are just, they pick something and maybe the it's not on a priority level, but it may be, well, we're going to cut this program because we can't find a teacher. Or we're, we're just, we, we can't afford everything, and so we're picking this. You know, they work with their community, and we're not going to have you fill in the blank of, you know, uh, any one of those programs. Maybe it's music. Maybe it's art. Maybe it's, um, uh, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's an athletic program, or they're having to combine with somebody else. The one we didn't bring up that's uh, a big topic of conversation across the state is the whole four-day week. Many schools have gone to um, having school on four days out of the week instead of five. Glenn, clearly you're not following Redefining Rural because <laughs> we did do a show on that uh, a couple weeks back, a couple months back. But that is a uh, that is a great point and always worth reminding. And for those of you that want to listen to that show, do um, – Take a look on our homepage. You can you can hear some great insights around the, both the opportunities created and, and the opportunities lost. Okay, so Glenn, can you talk to us a little bit about the rural funding and then what your uses have been for that funding in your district for the past few years? Okay, um, well, this rural funding has been due to the efforts of some of the superintendents uh, working on things, and it's supposed to be one-time money because there's no guarantee from year to year, which is, again, another topic. But um, uh, we've used it some for some transportation. Again, it's supposed to be not ongoing costs. Um, we've used it some for some curriculum things. Um, we've added a mental health professional this year. Um, I know uh, a number of other districts have used it to purchase equipment. They've used it for technology. They've used it for uh, transportation. Um, uh, many times uh, that goes into deferred maintenance, which is one of those things of, of taking care of, of the facilities and the assets that you have. 
So and just so that the, the audience understands, uh, three years ago, thanks, I would say, to Senator Sonnenberg and uh, Representative Becker through Senate Bill 267, they, um, for the first time, allocated $30 million to rural school districts in the state. That we got that money again the following year, again, thanks to those players and good, great advocacy work, as Glenn indicated, by rural superintendents and the support of the superintendents throughout the state. This last year, they were allocated $20 million of this one-time money for the third time um, in recognition of the fact, as Lisa mentioned earlier, that the BS factor, because it cuts the factors, and those factors are intended to balance out the uh, small economies of scale and small size and remoteness of rural districts hits rural districts harder. So we're not done fighting for that money. We're trying to figure out a way to reconstrue it as not one-time money. Um, but you'll be hearing more about that as we go forward through the legislature. Now we'd love to uh, turn to Lisa to talk a little bit about what Great Ed and the coalitions are doing um, this both in November to bring some more money to education and then uh, going forward. Right. Uh, you know, the, the things like this rural funding are band-aids on top of a problem that has just been compounding for decades. It's taken us a long time to fall $2,700 below the national average. And it's going to take a lot of those efforts. It may be a band-aid, but it's a critical band-aid that has really made a lot of difference to, to kids throughout Colorado and rural Colorado. So we really have to, uh, to, to find those opportunities to make sure that we can bring a little bit more investment uh, at the, for, for our schools and, and some of the other things that the, in our, in our uh, economy and in our state that we need, like you know, good, safe uh, roads and bridges and a, a strong higher education system. Um, and so we have been working together um, with, we have partners, one of the, uh, I said we build coalitions, uh, the most exciting uh, and sustainable one is called the Great Schools Thriving Communities Coalition that came together in 2016 and has been building uh, relationships among the, the practitioners, the, the teachers, the administrators, the school boards, Rural Schools Alliance is a, is a part of it, but also uh, a broad variety of the parents through PTA, Gifted and Talented Association, the Arc of Colorado, really a broad coalition say we've got to do something uh, to do start fixing this bit by bit and then look toward a, a, a broader solution. Um, right now, what we have in front of us, I mentioned that, that voters are the tax policy makers in Colorado. The only time that we all can make tax policy as voters is when somebody puts something in front of us. And the legislature has done that this year with something called Proposition CC, uh, which is an opportunity to use the benefits of a, a very strong uh, statewide economy that, that, uh, that uh, strong economy hasn't reached every corner of Colorado, but the Front Range especially has done very well. And we have a formula in our Constitution that was put in there uh, 27 years ago. We've kind of outgrown uh, the, a formula that doesn't allow us to even invest what's coming in under our current uh, very low, uh, nationally low tax rates uh, to invest in things like K-12, higher ed, and transportation. So what the legislature put forward with the Prop CC is just saying very simply, very common sense without raising taxes in order to support our public education and our higher ed and, and roads, bridges, and transit. Um, and within our balanced budget, which is very important, can we just invest the, uh, the amount that's not currently allowed to be retained and spent by the, the, uh, by the state? Can we invest that 
uh, in the most important uh, sort of public improvements uh, that we all care about. Uh, and so a vote on uh, yes vote on Prop CC will uh, allow about 100 million. It's it, we'll we'll see because it's uh, as the economy changes, the number will change over time. But it looks like somewhere between 80 and 100 dollars per student, uh, basically, for uh, K-12. It's uh, divided what whatever comes in above that formula. Uh, will be divided three ways between those things I mentioned, K-12 higher ed and transportation. And what it will do, unfortunately, this has to be one-time dollars uh, because we don't know how often those dollars will come in above that line. So again, it's non-recurring expenses, but just like that rural money has made a huge difference, these are dollars that can be spent uh, on teacher bonuses, for instance. You can't pay use it for salaries because it's not ongoing, but you can do teacher bonuses. You can uh, buy technology. You can, uh, uh, you know, broadband so that you've got greater access to distance learning. And the most important thing is that those decisions were not made in the under the gold dome, but those decisions are going to be made where it where, where people can hold their folks most accountable and where the decisions are made closest to the students. And that's uh, our local school boards will be deciding how to use those dollars as they come in. Uh, just a critical first step and our coalition and others are going to just keep working at it and figure out common sense ways for us to turn this around because it doesn't make a sen sense that a state uh, that we love so much, that does such a great job in, in preserving open space, um, that, that, that this state uh, isn't able to provide the kind of opportunities that every student, no matter where they live, how they learn, what their zip code, uh, to, to really launch them. And, and we know that Colorado cares about that, uh, and that's uh, having that opportunity this year a lot of people don't know that uh, uh, there's an election in 2019. It's an odd year election, but it's a very uh, critical election. Uh, so we need everybody to vote by November 5th. You'll get your ballot in probably mid-October. You got to get that ballot, vote yes on, on Proposition CC. And uh, if uh, we, we're looking for as many people as possible to, to go to uh, a website that we call publiceducationvoter.org uh, and uh, take part in helping let other people know uh, that there's an election this year, that it's really important for our schools, and to be a public education voter this year, it means voting yes on Proposition CC. So just to be clear, Proposition CC is on the ballot in November. Um, resources at publiceducationvoter.org. Um, it is not a tax increase, but it does negate the tax refunds that would otherwise be required right. and under And I'm just going to jump in here, yeah. uh, is a rebate. Do not confuse this with the refunds that you get because you overpaid taxes. Fair. This is a rebate that is just dollars that came in above this artificial formula that we put in place when cell phones weighed like five pounds and the internet was like nobody had a clue what could happen and how we could transform our economy. And I think we will be issuing a rebate this year, right? That's correct. The rebate that's required because of the Tabor surplus for eighteen nineteen is not affected by Proposition CC. This is 1920 and all years going forward if, and the big if is if the revenue generated by our economy is enough to exceed the Tabor right. cap. And in those years, if, if Proposition CC doesn't, doesn't pass, we will be sending back small amounts to individuals and foregoing some of these kinds of really important investments in our, in our children's futures and in, in uh, the economy in the form of, of uh, a, a ready workforce and, and roads that move people.
Thank you for that. Can you talk a little bit about um, what else your coalition is working on going forward? Uh, this coalition, and, and uh, uh, Michelle has tossed it to me, but she could uh, answer the question herself she's, since she's uh, one of, uh, is, has been an incredibly valued and engaged member of our coalition. Um, you know, what we're looking for is sustained, equitable, adequate funding of our schools. And that is going to take, uh, it, it means going to the legislature. The coalition worked very hard to, uh, we were in support of the rural funding uh, this year. And so we're, we want to, to um, just bring everybody together and see what, where we can come to common ground. Some of these organizations that are together hadn't met each other except maybe to testify against each other uh, at, at, at hearings. And the reason that was happening is because we're fighting over crumbs. And when we brought everybody together, we realized that if we, f if we all come together and think about uh, addressing the bigger issue, then um, we can all recognize that uh, the needs of rural students and gifted and talented students and special education students and students who are all of those things um, don't have to be uh, pitted against each other. So we'll be looking at the, the, the uh, legislature next year and we'll be working with other groups that are trying to figure out putting something on the ballot that can... Uh, make a difference uh, for, for students uh, for years to come. Um, but the most important thing is being an inclusive and diverse coalition so we're really listening to each other and being supportive instead of being, uh, as I said, pitted against each other, which happened in the past every, uh, every session. And now even just the ability for us to come together uh, and talk about these issues has, has I think, expanded uh, people's view. I think a lot of folks have learned about what's going on in rural schools from being in the room for the last almost three years. We have seen a real shift in the capital from uh, on some of our positions and some of the policies that we advance specific to rural based on the uh, relationships and conversations that we've had at those coalition meetings, both within the finance um, conversations as well as others, student discipline, resources, teacher recruitment. It's really been quite remarkable and we're quite grateful for that. I want to be clear, too, one of the issues that has come up is that even if Prop C, C is to pass, it's sort of similar to the, we had an episode about where are the medical marijuana or where are the marijuana tax dollars going in um, there's still great need in our schools. Even if Prop CC passes, I think Lisa said it's about 80 to $100 a student, which is in no way going to make up for the critical shortfalls uh, around right. the state and particularly in rural schools. So we will continue to talk about ways to uh, generate additional revenue. We're also continuing to watch the work of the interim committee on school finance that has been working really hard under some great rural leadership, I might add, um, to tackle some of the questions and concerns that Glenn talked about with regard to the various factors and are they working, are they creating equity, um, and are they equitable. Um, so stay tuned as we get more into our advocacy space. We'll talk about, about that during the session. I want to take just one minute. This could make it on or not. Uh, I just want to take a minute to, to go back to that marijuana question. That is the number one question we get anywhere we go, anytime we post on Facebook. What happened to the marijuana money? And just for some perspective, it's about $40 million, The base is $40 million. Uh, that goes to the best, the Building Excellence Schools Today program, which has done remarkable things for uh, for schools and for uh, communities around the state, in, especially in rural communities. 
Uh, and so that money is it's being used the way that it was supposed to be used, that marijuana money. It is helping students, but it does not go to operating. And so when people ask that question, they don't understand. Even if it were going to operating, we're talking about $40 million. That's about $40 per student. Uh, compared to the 600 that we're, we, we've lost out on. So uh, we always like to have an opportunity. And one of the things that makes me the happiest is when before we even get to it on Facebook, other people are saying, no, here's where the dollars went. They were good. It's doing good stuff. But uh, so I'd encourage anybody listening to be a part of that army of uh, correcting. And, and we need to make sure that people don't next year say, we did marijuana and then we did Prop CC. Why is there still a need? We have to make it clear that this is critical work. We have to get this passed and we have to keep working if we're going to do right by all the kids in every district around the state. And just um, uh, to add to that, we, we did a podcast on that. So if you need to know more about marijuana right. tax revenue, go back through our podcast and you can take a listen to that one to get more information. Thank you. Thank you to Lisa and to Glenn and to Daniil. We're missing Kirk, as some of you may have noticed. He will be back next month. And uh, take care. Talk soon. Fantastic conversation that we just had. And uh, be sure to vote yes on Prop CC. You can find more information about that at publiceducationvoter.org. So be sure to click on that link in the description below. Have a great day. <laughs>